following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. I don't know how your summer was, but mine was amazing. And as I thought through the summer and prayed through it, some of the things that came to my mind that we men constantly face is that the older we get, the more cynical we become. And our cynicism sometimes gets in the way of us learning how to trust and knowing what we can believe and makes us really almost jaded when it comes down to telling other people something that's worth them knowing about and our enthusiasm of telling them. So I was going through the annals of uh, human history and trying to figure out how many times our level of trust and openness has been corrupted. And so here's a picture of one of the corruptions that has probably made all of us live our lives that way. And this is a very famous picture of a Loch Ness monster. I lived for a couple of years in Scotland. And even though there were some great sights I missed, I did not miss the chance to take my family up to Loch Ness. We stood there by the shores wondering whether or not there really was a prehistoric monster there. And of course, this guy who was uh, irritated and bitter about the way he was treated, he and a buddy got together and they put a piece of plastic on a toy submarine, sent it out into the lake, and they took a picture, this picture, and when he was about ready to pass away and die in, in, the, late ni- in the early 90s, and he confessed to the world what he had done. And so many, many people are thinking to themselves, okay, okay, we kept on wondering about this. We spent bazillion dollars sending divers down and trying to find out whether or not this was true. And all these decades of believing that there might be a possibility, we suddenly realized somebody duped us. Now, when you have those kinds of moments, most of us guys try to put it in our spirit. I'm not going to trust anybody again. No, no way. And then we see a really cute little picture like this. And after all, Walt Disney, Disney Productions, made us believe that the lemming, every several years, when a whole bunch of them get born and they don't have enough food and place to live, they all go on this amazing rampage and then jump in the water and kill themselves. And that kind of reduces the population so that the lemmings that are left can live. Well, we, we believe that. I mean, how many times have we heard the lemmings to the sea? And that almost becomes a phrase in how we express mass hysteria when no one really knows what to do and there's not enough uh, resources in order to feed us. Well, we find out later that the production studio of, 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 of Disney actually had these animals flown to a place where they don't normally live. And then they herded them outside of the screenshot of the, of the camera. They herded them to the edge of this cliff. And of course, the animals didn't want to jump off the cliff on their own. So they got a turntable, which is a, a, re, a, a deal that used to play these little vinyl discs called records. And they turned it on, and then they grabbed some of these little lemmings, and they put them on these turntable things, and they'd flip around, and they'd fly off the the edge of the the cliff. And so the Disney camera people took pictures of the lemmings flying through the air and falling into the water, and they made it look like it was nothing more than all these lemmings that would then jump into the water and kill themselves. It was staged. It was a hoax. It was phony. But it was Disney, so we believed it. Of course, during World War II, we had a really brilliant group of people called the Ghost Army. Some of you are young enough to believe that. I just read it in history books myself. And this was a special group of individuals, over a thousand military individuals who were supposed to give the impression of massive movements 
of military armament so that the Nazi forces would be fooled and distribute their forces where they, they thought that the enemy was going to attack or the Allied forces were going to attack so that Normandy could be successful. It was an amazing phenomenon that as bloody as Normandy was, it could have been a lot worse. If this particular group, the Ghost Army, hadn't blown up balloons that looked like tanks and amassed them in different areas to pretend like the Allied forces are going to launch their attack someplace else. People can be duped. A hoax can be initiated. And because these hoaxes occur, then sometimes our level of belief and trust is really limited. Well, there was a BBC report that the, uh, there was a bumper crop of spaghetti growing on spaghetti trees in Switzerland. And they actually had a three-minute uh, film on this, and they broadcast it. And people thought, man, they're having a bumper crop from the spaghetti trees in Switzerland, and people believed it. And they had calls all over the place from BBC to BBC and asking, how can I get one of these trees? And once I get it, how in the world can I make it produce like that so I don't ever have to go to the store and buy spaghetti again? Well, of course, the people who are a little bit smarter realized that this particular BBC report was distributed on April 1st. So on April Fool's Day in 1957, then people were starting to think, well, okay, I don't want to believe too much that I see on this thing called multimedia. Well, here's a picture of the balloon boy and the father who launched this looking like a spacecraft helium um, balloon. And I, I still remember the day watching news and this thing was going through the sky and everyone was terrified because he couldn't find his son and was afraid that the report that was given to him that his son climbed into this balloon and now he is flying around and no one could get him down. I mean, the country... The world was watching this balloon go through the air, and they were following on the ground, hoping that when it would finally land, they couldn't shoot it down. But when it finally landed, they could rescue the boy. But when it finally came down, there was no boy. And the son was actually hiding in the parents' attic. And when the boy was finally brought down, the people said, why didn't you say something? He said, my parents told me not to. Because the parents wanted the news to find this family so interesting that they would develop a reality show based on this family's experiences. And boy, you talk about people who are irritated and all the money they put in to try to rescue this kid. The hoax. We've been duped again. It's no wonder that people are thinking to themselves, man, when someone tells me something really exciting, I don't know if I want to believe it. This is probably my favorite one. 1998, Burger King announced through the USA Today on a full-page ad that they had developed after a long study of their clientele and their potential customer base, they decided to develop a left-handed Whopper because all the people who are right-handed were too much advantage in eating this wonderful delicacy. Of course, the people who went into Burger King that day said, no, I just want my, my normal right-handed burger. And some people came in really excited looking for the left-handed Whopper. And those people forgot that that day, too, in 1998, was April 1. So we are a dubious people who are constantly doubting good news and information of something that we find possibly appealing. What in the world can convince us as individuals to trust again? How in the world can we establish the credibility so that we can believe, whether it's a financial investment, a good decision, or a move, some kind of news on the networks that would tell us that the troubles around the world are actually starting to get better. It's overwhelming to think that when we go through this life and we have all the constant experiences that we do, life is not easy. 
friends betraying friends, customers who are cheating us, salespeople who represent us selling dishonestly, people constantly lying on their taxes. How in the world can we make a difference with this? All of this was part of the spirit that God was giving me a real sense of what in the world are we going to do with Warrior's Heart this fall? Because during this summer when we had the time off, I tried to spend as much time as I could, try to average maybe a significant person that someone had recommended that I meet here in the city of Houston. Because there's one thing that we want to do more than anything else. I mean, the leadership here and the brothers who are part of this Warrior's Heart, our passion is not just so you can get smarter. It is not. We hope you you will. We hope that you understand the Word of God better, be more confident in it. But there's a strong desire way beyond that, and that is all of us, because of what we do together, can impact the city of Houston like it's never been impacted before. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it, if the headline in the news says, Houston, fastest growing city in the United States, now becoming global in its reputation, not only known for its energy, not only known for its finance, not only known for its trade, but also known because something spiritual is happening here in this city. It would be a phenomenal thing if God would take the men who are here as a part of Warrior's Heart to make it a spark, to say this is a fire that we'd love to see God start to burn. And what better way than to look at the book of Mark where Jesus Christ is not presenting himself as, hey, come over here, I've got something great. But rather look at the gospel of Mark where Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, comes and says, I've come here to be your servant, to impact your life with truth, your life with a new relationship. And if each one of us could capture that same spirit of being a servant, looking at the lives of people that God has brought into our circumference of influence, and us saying to those individuals through prayer and through friendship, not preaching a sermon, not pounding on a pulpit, but instead coming alongside of them when their trials are going to come in their life inevitably where there's going to be great challenges and difficulty, and we'll say to them, whatever I can do, let me be there by your side. Let me be your friend. Let me help. Let me serve you through this time of difficulty. And for them to see an evidence of light in someone else that is beyond this world, come alongside when they have felt so lonely and all by themselves, and suddenly realize this person is a representative of who Jesus Christ is. That's one of the reasons why we're studying the book of Mark to capture that sense of servanthood in order to be a part of the declaration of a tremendous message. Well, there's an amazing sense where in Mark chapter 1, if you want to turn in your Bibles, that'd be great. If you just want to look up here on the screen, that'd be great. If you want to punch it up on your PDA, that'd be great. Look on your iPad, anything's fine. But we're going to be looking at the gospel of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 13 today. And the scriptures tell us that the gospel is at the heart and the soul of this presentation. An amazing thing is that the word gospel that sometimes probably least ringing in my mind is the words of my dad. And he was cutting my hair when I was a young teenage boy, and I wanted to go to church, I wanted to get baptized, and my dad was getting irritated, he was getting annoyed, he's not a believer, and he was cutting my hair with a razor, and he was saying, as he pushed on my shoulder and as he pressed on my head, what's this gospel stuff anyway? I don't want to just hear you talking about gospel this and gospel that. And, of course, he had the razor in his hand, and he was the dominant one. He was my dad. I was just a little teenage kid. I didn't say anything, man. I was just holding my breath and praying that this razor in his hand would not slip. And I remember that particular conversation, 
And I remember that I was pressed in my spirit to say, I don't want to just say the gospel so it becomes a pejorative term. I don't want to learn this thing called gospel and make it something that gets my dad or anybody else irritated. What is it about this word gospel that is so defining? So here in the scripture, it begins. And it's not a word that is going to offend because the word literally means that it is good news. Two words placed in the one, good and declaration. Or declaration is something that is exciting and good to hear. Good news, that's what the gospel means. And from this particular standpoint, it seems that it's not just about the person of Jesus Christ that's going to be living among the people, but really the consequence of the life at its end because of what it demonstrated and declared all through the process. And there's a phenomenal sense where the gospel is something positive. But most of us have this hesitation. Very few of us would go to work today and someone looks a little bit downtrodden. They say, hey, you okay? He says, nah, if I could just have some good news, that would be great. Everything just seems to be piling up on me. Most of us as Christians get a lump in our throat and a hesitation in our spirit. I don't want to say the word gospel. That's going to sound too religious. And we talk ourselves out of the best news that anybody could possibly have. That's okay to hesitate. If there's ever that debate, don't fight it. Just wait for the opportunity for a relationship to allow for the presentation of the good news of who Jesus Christ is. We're not trying to make people feel guilty so that they stumble through. Oh, I got to use that word. I got to use that word. If we use it and we find hesitation or reluctance, and that wipes out our testimony and witness for the rest of maybe our relationship with that person. We are people whose trust and our fear of losing the trust of somebody else is at a high point whenever we function in relationship with people. But hold it back. Keep it in reserve. The good news, that word gospel, is absolutely powerful. One of the things that I love about the presentation of Jesus Christ is that he wants us to go to a point where we will believe and accept and the salvation will be at the end. Uh, we human beings are so eager to get to the final conclusion where someone accepts the Lord, where their salvation is guaranteed, that we're fearful of the journey that it actually takes to get there. So all of this begins with this wonderful name of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that Jesus Christ does here in the scriptures as Mark introduces him is he uses his name, Jesus, which is his personal name, meaning God saves, or Yahweh, God who makes promises and keeps them. That's the word Jehovah. It's a part of the name Jesus, Jesus saves. And there is a rescue that's involved with that, a need to be saved, and the power in which to make it happen. And the word Christ or Jesus Christ is full name together, the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed one. God has a purpose or a promise. It's going to be personified in this one called Messiah, and it's going to be accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only is Jesus personal to us, not only is he a fulfillment of prophecy, but he's also the one who's the son of God. His deity was 100%, not partial, not begun in time, but always there, enabling him to be the incredible sacrifice that he was for each and every one of us. Well, this is where trust comes into the picture because this is a, the lesson that's going to be wrapped up in these five concepts that I'd like you to somehow remember or at least be introduced to, jot them down, and make them a part of your whole mental experience as we go through the book of Mark. How in the world do we believe Jesus? If we can't believe Burger King when they make an announcement in USA Today, if someone could take a phony picture of a plastic toy and say that this is a 
uh, prehistoric creature. How in the world can we believe an old book written so long ago, with language sometimes it's difficult for people to understand, and make that particular story believable? Well, it's amazing. If you were to be uh, awakened this morning at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, and you would look through your people, and uh, there, there were the guys from Warrior's Heart standing at your door with a big smile. And uh, you would shout out to them, what do you guys want and who are you? And they would say, we're from Warrior's Heart and we're here to wake you up and invite you to our gathering this morning. Uh, most of you would not open the door. You wouldn't be smart to open up your door. Uh, we would flood in there and jump on you and hogtie you and bring you with us. But you would also say to yourself, I'm the man, I'm responsible for the people in this house. I am going to protect them. All right, if you guys are really from Warrior's Heart, let's see some credentials. Give me a reason why I can trust who you say you are. If it wasn't Warrior's Heart, but it was the FBI, it was NSA, it was CIA, you'd want to see some credentials. You don't believe them just because they say it. It's impressive what they announce, but you want to see some credentials before you believe, before you trust, you want to see some credentials. Jesus Christ comes and says, I'm the Savior of the world. I'm going to be your servant. Okay, well, let's see some credentials. I want to believe you because this is really good news, but I want to see some credentials, and here they are. Amazing here, there's a sense of prophecy that's given. John the Baptist is going to announce him. He's going to have a water baptism. It's going to be significant and meaningful. There's a word from heaven that's going to come down and affirm him. There's this wilderness temptation where he demonstrates his great ability. Five credentials that Jesus Christ gives so that we could believe his message that he is the Son of God coming here for our salvation as our servant. One of the first things that happens that Mark does is he quotes from old, the Old Testament and saying, this is what Isaiah says. And when he says, Isaiah says this about this person coming, the Messiah or Jesus Christ, this is our first level of credentialing to prove that Jesus Christ's message is going to be valid. But it's at this first announcement that we have some hesitation because Mark says this is what Isaiah says. And every liberal critic of Jesus and every liberal critic of the Bible will jump all over this. Say, you believe that there are no errors in the Bible? Here's the first big mistake in the, in the Gospel of Mark. Mark says this is what Isaiah said, and it wasn't Isaiah. It was Moses from Exodus. It was Malachi and his minor prophet. Isaiah was one of the guys, but only one of the three. So Mark got it wrong when he said, this is what Isaiah said. He didn't even know his Old Testament. So all of us are kind of cowering underneath that and saying, wow, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. Mark did make a mistake. He said, this is what Isaiah said. But Moses was a part of that. Malachi was a part of that, as well as Isaiah. What in the world do we do? There's an error but right before we even get to the gospel. And all you have to do is remember, these are modern critics who have no understanding of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, when writers got together with regard to the revelation of God's word, they saw beyond the precision of what we do here in the West. Not just who gets the credit for it and documentation and verifying information, but instead they would look at the message and say, what is the overriding message of all of this information in the prophecies of the Old Testament? And they notice one dominating theme that matches a New Testament fruition or prophecy. It's called the desert. It's called the wilderness. John the Baptist did not live in urban Jerusalem. He did not live in downtown Tel Aviv. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness, and he was the one who was going to announce and make way straight for Jesus Christ coming, the Messiah, the answer to all of man's greatest problems. 
And the wilderness was his identity. And when Mark, through inspired scripture, looked through the Old Testament prophecies, he looked for themes that anticipated the announcement coming from John the Baptist as a forerunner of Jesus Christ. And he saw three great themes running through Malachi and Moses' writing and also Isaiah, and that was the wilderness. And that's the way the Old Testament was used by New Testament writers, not because of a chapter, not because of a verse, not because of an author, but because of themes that represented themselves and pointed to the Messiah. But the dominating author that represented all of that was Isaiah. And so Mark took Moses, Mark took Malachi, and Mark took the overriding representation of Isaiah. And he put that message together and said, see what was prophesied in the Old Testament as represented by Isaiah, that there's one coming in the wilderness who will announce the Messiah is to come. So you give that to some liberal who criticizes the Bible as being inaccurate. Boy, you'll sound so smart. They'll say, man, did you graduate from Dallas Seminary? I said, yeah, I didn't have to pay my tuition. Just learn it on Thursday morning. So this is this great common theme and this wonderful link here that Israel's past, that John the Baptist was going to be from the desert, it's going to be a representation. You have the reference of a significant individual, and it validates who you are to people who want to know your background. John's baptism was a very special one. It was not unusual for people to get baptized. It was a really common religious experience. It all referred to identifying with the message of the one to whom you, who was speaking. It referred to someone who would turn around, they would change their mind. There would be results as a response of belief to what an individual was hearing. And when we believed it, then our lives changed. Now, gentlemen, one of our most powerful messages to all the people that we're going to meet today and all the people we're going to hang out this week who don't know Jesus Christ, it's the change that's happened to us for eternity that they are only getting a hint of, don't have an explanation for yet, but would love to have it for themselves. One of the greatest parts of our ability to share the good news of Jesus Christ with somebody else is our sincerity and genuineness of being changed. Not because we're perfect, not because we've never made a mistake, but issues of sin, difficulties of our past have been taken care of by the eternal work of Jesus Christ. And it's not because we have a perfect marriage or a perfect family because the mistakes we've made and the way we've been able to correct it has been through what the gospel has enabled us to be now new creatures in the lives of those that we have forgiven and have forgiven us that have confessed to us and we've confessed to them. And we never, ever present ourselves what we're not. That's insincere and not genuine. We present ourselves as sinners simply saved by grace. And the good news that is there for everybody else, that God has placed on our circumference of influence. Can you imagine if all of us here in this room were able in the next year or so to watch God move in the lives of two or three people that we know just because of the way we live our lives for them as servants in their lives, not just because of we, we, we're helping them with their work, but we're helping them with their lives, going through those tough moments when their marriage is on the rocks, when the kids are in a rebellion, when someone has done them dirty in the office. There's been deep betrayal that has gone in their life, and they feel like they've been passed over because of the ill will of others in the office. We've experienced all those things, not so that God could waste it, but so that God can make us identify 
with others who will go through those difficulties, but find solace in him, and we then can point them in that direction. Anticipation of the one coming in Mark chapter 1, verse 7, and it's a powerful statement of an announcement that's there. The sense that Messiah is not used as a title, but certainly his identity is there in John's incredible humility through this entire process. As we go through the scripture here and see the things that are occurring, then John the Baptist is a big part as a one that's going to throw his identity with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is baptized. This is the modern picture of where that particular location is. When you go there and sit on these benches and look at that muddy, filthy water, there's nothing spectacular at all about the situation, but the fact that traditionally that Jesus Christ may have been baptized there, that'll actually get your blood curdling from your toes all the way up to your head. But Jesus got baptized not so that we would follow his example from the standpoint of, well, he got dunked, I guess I should get dunked too. I mean, Jesus had no sin, so there was no need for repentance. Well, heaven's opened up and there's a testimony that said, this is good, this is my, my son. There's a dove that landed on Jesus Christ. It was a personification or an animation of the Holy Spirit. I got some bad news for you guys. That doesn't happen when we get baptized in water. So we don't get baptized because Jesus got baptized. We do share one thing in common, though. Jesus got baptized not because he was repenting of any sin, but because baptism is always an act or a right to identify us with a message. It's an issue of identification. And Jesus was identifying with John the Baptist, with all these throngs of people who came out from Jerusalem and all of Judea out here into the wilderness in order to be baptized. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm looking for God to do something really big. I've, I've been a part of some of those things amazingly enough in my life, and I thank God for that privilege, but I, I don't want just the past to be what is satisfying for me for today or tomorrow. I'd love to see God do something huge here in the city of Houston, not for my sake, not for your sake, not for, for the churches that we represent here in this group. I'd love just to be a part of something where we can all identify and say, yeah, that's, that's my God. I'm, a, I'm identifying with him. I'm a follower of that God who's done this. But we didn't know how many guys were going to show up today. We know that the marketing was really limited. So we just prayed and said, God, your marketing skills are much better than ours, and we want you to remind these guys to wake up and show up. Because we'd love for all of us to be together in all this. When I met with some of those very significant leaders here in this city, I said, hey, we, we went with a, with a bunch of guys on Thursday mornings. We're not just interested in getting smarter. We'd like to be very open that if God wanted to do a movement in the city of Houston, we want to be at the heart and the center of serving to make that happen. If God's been moving in your heart the same way, boy, let's get together and pray and let's get together and talk. Can the men who are the followers of Jesus in the city of Houston light it up in this city for Jesus Christ? I mean, all of us are going to be cheering if the Texans make it to the playoffs. All of us are going to be cheering if the Astros could do something. All of us are really wondering how the Rockets are going to do now that Lynn's no longer there. But what would happen and how hungry are we to see the followers of Jesus and the church of Jesus Christ in the city of Houston rise up and make a difference in the city? 
I've got a habit that every time God leads me south and I'm driving on Interstate 45 going south and I pass by Planned Parenthood, I pray for God to dismantle that place. I say, God, there's a lot going on there that's breaking your heart. And I drive past some of the places here in the city that are just devastated with poverty and crime and people without hope. And if I can catch a glimpse of some of those countenances that are empty, I just pray, God, can you do something here in the city to help the church, the followers of your son, Jesus, to do something that we would light it up here in the city so that people like that can have hope that you've given to us every single day of our lives through Jesus. Start praying, men. Let's just start opening ourselves to the Lord. If, if it's not God's time, I've already told the Lord this summer, if it's not your time for the city of Houston, I don't want to do something out of the flesh. But Lord, if you want to ignite something, and you want to take warrior's heart and make that the beginning, I surely wouldn't say no, and we would be ready if you were to call upon us to do something for you. Jesus' temptation to the wilderness is a demonstration that he was the one who was the Son of God. And there's a very powerful sense of an introduction, a declaration from the prophecy of the Old Testament, a real sense of the introduction by John the Baptist, a real strong sense where there's very, very powerful, powerful sense where the heavens have opened up and said, this affirmation of this individual, Jesus, he is, he is the, the approved one and the Son of God. And, and all these credentials that he's given to us these, that we've studied here in Mark chapter 1, it was stirring in my spirit when I walked into the bank. And I, I know this sounds really silly, but I was checking my uh, credit card. And not, there's not a lot of activity there, but we, we don't try to use it very much. But there was one particular episode on my credit card statement that I did not recognize. And it was from uh, iTunes. And it was a charge from iTunes and said that I had made this purchase. And it was only for $1.06. But the truth was, I didn't make it. I haven't done iTunes for probably six or seven years. In fact, if you asked me to make a purchase on iTunes today, I wouldn't know how to do it because I haven't done it for so long. But I felt silly going into the bank to tell them, you guys overcharged me $1.06, and I want, I want satisfaction. <laughs> so I just went in and said, hey, I've got a little question on my statement. And they said, sure, Mr. Fong, come on in. Have a seat. And uh, she said, this so-and-so, he's a vice president. I'll be right with you. I thought, oh, my goodness, they gave me a VP for $1.06 uh, question. So he came in and sat down like a VP. I mean, he did not smile. He did not look happy. He's the only one in the bank that I thought didn't look happy. In fact, he looked like he was irritated that I was there. And I said, hi, my name's Bruce. He says, he looks at my paper. Oh, yes, Mr. Fong. And then he smiled. I said, yeah, I just got a question. I don't know if this is an appropriate person or appropriate procedure, but I've got this charge that I never made that showed up on my credit card. And he says, oh, let me see. And I showed it to him. And he says, you've not made this? I says, I, I don't know how to do iTunes. It's been probably five or six years since I've done one, and this was just Monday. Hmm. And he starts typing on his computer. He picks up the phone, and he's talking to this person. Says, "I'm here representing Bruce Fong. He's got this number. This is his credit card, and there's a charge here that he did not make, and we need you to take a look at it right now." Ooh, boy, this is the kind of guy I want. Man, he's and and he he waited for a few minutes. He looked over at me and winked and smiled, and I thought, this is great. And I don't know how much he makes an hour, but it's a lot more than $1.06 an hour. <laughs> and he hung up, and he, after he said thank you, and he put his phone down and says, everything's taken care of, Mr. Fong. You should see an adjustment here within, a, within five business days. I said, well, thank you. 
He says, now, what, what is this that you do? He's looking at my paper, and I, and I said, well, I'm, I'm in seminary education. He says, seminary? I says, yeah, we train pastors and missionaries and church leaders. He says, wow. Cocked his head and thought for a moment, and you could tell when a person goes from business to personal. That personally says, hmm. You know, I used to go to church a lot when I was a kid. And I don't know about you, but that's when uh, when you're a lion and you're out there on the hunt and an animal lifts its head and the juggler is available. <laughs> so I just said, you know, church is a really good thing. And what you started a long time ago, you ought to get back into it because it's really worthwhile. He looks over at me and shrugs his shoulder. Well, that was a long time ago when I was a kid. I said, you don't have a church to go to now? He says, oh, no. I said, man, have I got a place for you to go. I'm, I'm a member at Houston's First Baptist. It's right there in 610. And he says, oh, yeah, in 10. He says, I see it almost every day. You, you get the big cross with a waterfall on it, right? So that's, that's it. He said, you can look us up online. We have great fellowship. We have amazing worship. We've got a terrific pastor. Come and be a part of the, the Houston's First family. And that's all I had to say. And you can see the guy looking down reflecting over what you have just presented to him. Thank you. I just might do that. Well, you got all my information. You had a lot more than I wanted to give him. Give me, give me a call if I could ever help. Gentlemen, that's all we want to do with the Gospel of Mark. We want to be his servant in this world and tell others about Christ with a sincerity and genuineness so that when someone reveals their jugular, we will not hesitate or hiccup. We will go right after it with a friendly, warm invitation, knowing that maybe not every step has to be the only step. And we can be a part of what others are going to be doing in his life. God knows what he needs. But let's be a part of influencing our city for Jesus Christ. Let's let Jesus Christ and his spirit turn the light on with maybe a spark from Moyer's heart by what we do to serve the people of the city. Have a great table talk. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.